ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isker, and we've got some really interesting Supreme Court oral argument, police chase, case discussion to talk about. It is going to be... It's like a Michael Bay movie, but over 130 pages of oral argument. I I will tell you this, uh, Sarah, I've seen probably every Michael Bay movie ever, and I've never seen one with facts this boring. (laughs) I think it's exciting. Well, the underlying facts are of the case are super boring, like not Michael Bay like there's not an explosion here. We could there is not a there's not a gun battle. There's no there's no asteroid hurtling to the U.S. Um, It is or to the world. It's a very boring fact situation that results in a super interesting discussion about encounters between police and citizens with some really interesting alignments. But we're going to get to that. And then we're also going to talk about, um, as we've long promised, hostile environment harassment, a fascinating case going to the Supreme Court that is going to try to resolve an issue regarding the use of racial slurs that we're going to use to talk about basically work, workplace harassment more broadly and what it really is and how we often uh, misidentify it. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is should women constitutionally um, be required to register for selective service for the draft if the U.S. is going to require men to register for the draft. So this is just an all-law advisory opinions, Sarah. I'm pumped. I'm. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. Okay. So how about this? How about if I set up the facts of what happened in our case, and we don't know, we just had a whole discussion beforehand, is it Lang v. California or is it Lange v. California, L-A-N-G-E? And this is one of the perils when everything you know about a case is by reading the case. I guess we could have cleared it up in nine seconds by listening to the oral argument transcript (laughs) rather than reading it. Well, sure, when you say it that way. We will hear argument this morning in case 2018, Lang versus California. We have done an instant oral argument transcript fact check or oral argument uh, a recording fact check, and it is Lang. Well, so that doesn't actually mean it's Lang, but it means that we're going <laughs> to say it Lang. As we know, the court has actually often mispronounced party names as well. Uh, and so these things end up being ambiguous through time. But uh, we'll go with Lang as the chief did. Yes. All right. So here are the facts. Um, case begins in 2016. So here we are in 2021, which I'm going to repeat my old lawyer's joke, Sarah. The great thing about America is that everyone gets their decade in court. Um, but so case begins in 2016. Lang is driving his car uh, near his home in Sonoma, California. I'm getting this. Summary from a very helpful SCOTUS blog, Amy Howe, former friend of the pod, SCOTUS blog, former guest. Um, He's playing loud music and honking his horn. An officer uh, sees this, follows Lang into his neighborhood, tries to stop him as he gets near to his garage. Lang, 
who said he didn't see the officer, continued into his garage and began to close the door behind him. The officer parked the car in the driveway, put his foot under the door to block it from closing, walked into the garage, said he smelled alcohol, gave, um, you know, gave Lang a blood alcohol or gave Lang an alcohol test. His blood alcohol was later determined to be three times the legal limit. So Lang is not taking this lying down. So now you see why this was no Michael Bay movie. It was like the most casual <laughs> seizure you can well, imagine. No, let's, uh, David, I don't think you were doing it right. Okay, so Lang <laughs> is driving down his street at a relatively reasonable speed. And then a hundred yards from his driveway, a police officer turns on his siren. For a hundred yards, the police officer stays behind Lang as Lang continues to drive at a reasonable rate of speed with his music blaring loudly. Then Lang casually pulls into his driveway. The police officer pulls up behind as the door is shutting. It is almost to the ground. The police officer's foot comes underneath and triggers the motion sensor. Um, is that better? No, no, no. Okay. But the point is Lang is then charged with (laughs) two misdemeanors. Driving under the influence, which was a misdemeanor in Sonoma, and playing music too loudly, which is actually an infraction, not a misdemeanor. There's there's infractions in California that don't even rot, <laughs> come to the level of misdemeanor. So uh, one infraction and one misdemeanor is what he is charged with. He does a motion to suppress under the exclusionary rule, the idea being that if an officer violates your Fourth Amendment rights, the remedy for that we all, and I think now take for granted because we've, you know, watched a lot of Law and Order and various uh, police dramas is that we exclude that evidence against you. That is not, by the way, in the Constitution. And it is not something to take for granted. You could have civil uh, fines or something against the officer or the police department that allows such things, um, such as we do with other civil rights violations, BT dubs. But anyway, we do the exclusionary rule for the Fourth Amendment. So he has a motion to exclude, and that's more or less what we're up upon. He is convicted, by the way. He loses his motion to exclude. Um, But that's really what we're talking about here. Was there a Fourth Amendment violation where that should have been excluded at his trial? And one of the key issues is, wait a minute, they were, quote unquote, chasing him, although it's the most boring chase ever. And let me just, I, I fully endorse your reading of the facts as Michael Bay-esque, but here's how it'd have to end. Lang, in despair over being seized for, in his own home for the, mere, for the mere offense of committing an infraction and a misdemeanor, looks up into the sky to pray, and there he sees it. The asteroid that could spell the doom of humanity. <laughs> So that's how. Oh, okay. That's how. It uh, I, okay, I can I can accept that. Um, I also really want to just spend ten seconds talking about how like <laughs> curtilage because I like saying curtilage. <laughs> so right, they're in his garage, which is like only kind of sort of yeah. part of your home. So your porch, certain types of garages, a carport, etc., are considered your curtilage. They're not part of your home, your true castle of the castle doctrine. But they're, you know, like in this other area, an intermediate scrutiny, if you will. Um, And so he's sort of in a curtilage aspect here, I think, with the garage. Yeah. And so setting this thing up, you had 
uh, multiple uh, multiple uh, advocates arguing in this case. You had the Biden administration intervening through the Solicitor General, and this is very interesting to me, taking a quite law and order position here, uh, one that is not exactly um, what you would expect from all those who said that Biden was going to be, you know, Mister Defund the Police. This is. He takes uh, the Biden administration takes a quite law and order perspective, but one of the there was multiple sort of strands of this argument, but sort of one of the core issues was, wait a minute, if it's only a misdemeanor he's suspected of committing, why are you going into his house without a warrant? And can we draw bright line rules that say, for example, if you're chasing someone over a misdemeanor, will that that's not going to allow you to walk into to walk into someone's home if you're a police officer without a warrant or to uh, break into, you know, bust down the door into someone's home if you're a police officer. Should we draw a bright line rule or is it not appropriate to draw a bright line rule? What should the rule be? And the reason why this is important is for multiple obvious reasons, including, you know, when do we want to grant that ability of the state to enter your home without consent in situations that are often quite fraught with high degrees of confusion and uncertainty. And I'll just start with you, Sarah. What, what, was, your, what was your first couple of sort of standout takeaways from the oral argument? Well, obviously, I had to divide the whole thing into buckets of potential outcomes. <laughs> I should have led with what were your buckets. Yeah, but. yeah. So obviously, I'm going to lead with what were my buckets. Uh, I do want to <laughs> mention, so there's four attorneys that argue this. It's why the oral argument, if you want to go read it, is 130 pages long. It's yeah. very long. Um, so you have the attorney for Lang. You have the attorney for the state of California, for the California Attorney General's office. Then, because nobody wanted to take the position that uh, all misdemeanors can qualify as, you know, hot pursuit, no Fourth Amendment problem with warrantless entries, they appointed an attorney to argue that position. They are called an amicus, um, same as amicus briefs, for instance, because friend of the court covers all sorts of types of friends, friends with benefits, friends you only see casually on the weekends. Um, so Amanda Rice was appointed as the amicus for this, and she is a former law clerk to Justice Kagan. This happens pretty frequently, and it's kind of fascinating when it does. They will generally pick a former clerk of theirs, and it's considered a high honor and a big deal. It usually yeah. goes to a younger attorney you know, not like fresh off the clerkship or anything, but someone who maybe is not even particularly close to the level of getting a Supreme Court argument in their big law practice. So uh, good on Amanda Rice. She did a fabulous job, I thought, with a pretty hard position to take. The reason you're appointed as amicus is because nobody else wants to take that position. Yeah. Um, so extra points to her for executing that well. And then, of course, the Department of Justice, like you mentioned. All right, so we have four attorneys, and I'm going to pick out three buckets for us to talk about, David, of, of potential outcomes here. One of the buckets has uh, several subparts in it. <laughs> so <laughs> Wait. I know. There's subdivisions within my bucket. Okay, okay. But, you know, that could I've happen I've not seen buckets. many buckets with subdivisions. Oh, no, yeah, but... there's like a little tripartite within your bucket. <laughs> like, it divides it. Like, you put it into, of course, like popcorn. When you get those popcorns, that's a bucket of popcorn, and then it's divided into the caramel popcorn, the original popcorn, and the cheddar popcorn. How about this? Your bucket is filled by several cupfuls of legal liquid. <laughs> I like my popcorn. Okay, okay, so, bucket number one. Um, hot pursuit alone 
is what justifies warrantless entry. So this was sort of the unpopular bucket, right? This is Amanda mm-hmm. Rice's bucket, that it doesn't matter whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. If there is a hot pursuit, you can make a warrantless entry, period. There was a little bit of a discussion over whether, like, okay, fine, that's a great uh, bright line to draw, but Alito, <laughs> and by the way, if that's the line, this is the only bucket in which Mr. Lang loses his case. Right. But even there, Alito sounded very uh, tempted by that bucket, except basically you have nine zero. You have nine justices who don't think that this evidence should have been admitted against Lang. So you're going to be up against the facts, which we've talked about plenty, right? Yeah. Like the facts make yeah. the law. These are good facts for Mr. Lang. I mean, 100 yards. So Alito's point on this bucket is okay, maybe all hot pursuits should qualify, but we also should ask whether this is a hot pursuit and it's not. There's nothing hot about it. There's arguably not a pursuit. A hundred yards with your lights on where no reasonable person and certainly not a reasonable drunk person would know that they were being pursued cannot a pursuit make. So that's bucket number one where Lang loses, except with the Alito, like even if we do this bright line, this case doesn't fit into it because we still have to make sure it's a hot pursuit. The problem with for Justice Alito is that the, the lowest court, the trial court, found that it was a hot pursuit. So, you know, you'd sort of have to send it back with a weird, weird thing. But Alito disagrees. He says that that's very much before the court of whether this is a hot pursuit. So suck at trial court. Yeah, okay. and the phrase, just to interrupt real fast, that phrase hot pursuit, in in layman's terms, sort of communicates like the chase on the freeway. In legal terms, a hot pursuit is, yeah, OJ. In legal terms, a hot pursuit is a pretty broad definition. It's much broader. Yeah, so the main case about hot pursuit is the Santana case from the 70s where Santana is sitting in her doorway with the door open, dealing heroin, basically. And... Uh, the police kind of approach and Santana moves from her doorway into the main body of her house and the police (laughs) follow her. That was a hot pursuit. Right. Yes. So this was, and the, the, by the way, why your doorway was considered not part of your home. I'm not sure how that would go today, but the idea was if your door's open and you're doing business in your doorway, you open that up to the public. You no longer have an expectation of privacy. And that's the curtilage conversation that we sort of were having. And note how the expansion of hot pursuit definition involved a drug case. <sighs> it's true. You're right. Okay. Anyway. You're right. Okay. Bucket number two. In order to f- have a warrantless entry, you have to have hot pursuit plus a felony. Uh, Lang wins in this case because obviously he did not have a felony. He had a misdemeanor and an infraction. Uh, literally no justices liked this rule. <laughs> zero votes as far as I can tell for this yeah. because the distinction between misdemeanor and felony is completely made up. Um, You know, in some states, something will be a felony, something will be a misdemeanor. I thought the best example was, you know, a third DUI is a felony, but a first one is a misdemeanor. And how is the officer supposed to know while he's pursuing you whether this is your third one or only your first one? It's an unworkable bucket. But nevertheless, the bucket exists. So here's the popcorn bucket with our three types of popcorn. This is um, 
that actually there is no hot pursuit doctrine by itself, that the doctrine is actually exigent circumstances, Mm -hmm. and that within the exigent circumstances bucket, you could have different versions of hot pursuit meeting the standard of an exigent circumstance. One, for instance, um, a hot pursuit where violence is likely um, part of the underlying crime or part of what's going to happen if you don't pursue, uh, let's see, our caramel corn, uh, just case by case. It's just totally up to the officer, not, uh, not legally speaking, but like it is, the officer is simply going to have to decide whether this meets the exigent circumstances test. And we're not going to provide any guidance really. <laughs> uh, or three are cheddar popcorn. This was the department of justice's position that, If you're in hot pursuit, there is a presumption that that's an exigent circumstance. It doesn't mean that it always will meet that, but we will presume that by the fact that you're fleeing, that that gives rise to an exigent circumstance, um, in which case, by the way, this would probably be the one outlier, right? Like, generally speaking, a hot pursuit would meet the exigent circumstance, but not in this case. Obviously, this was not an exigent circumstance to meet that. Um, I don't think this is a close call, David. I think that uh, we're going to be in this bucket. The only question is which type of popcorn we're picking, but we're definitely eating popcorn in this case. Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I broadly agree with you. And I think, again, to, to talk about definitions, so hot pursuit, has a legal definition that's a lot broader than the term would tend to indicate. Exigent circumstances, it's a very similar. uh, So exigent would seem to be, well, there's something really, truly exceptional going on. And here's a, a, a pretty common definition of exigent. Circumstances that would cause a reasonable person to believe that entry or other relevant prompt action was necessary to present, prevent physical harm to the officers or other persons. Okay, that's, That's something that you would think, well, that's definitely exigent. The destruction of relevant evidence, the escape of the suspect, or some other consequence improperly frustrating legitimate law enforcement efforts. Well, an escape of the suspect sort of by definition, like, well, I was pursuing them. I didn't get them. Now they're in a house, so they escaped, so I can go into the house. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it seems like... it seems as if you would, as I'm reading it, and tell me if, if you disagree, I, and I think you have 9-0 for something that says, under these facts, under these specific facts of the case, that there, there weren't exigent circumstances, which would be a narrow, slight, maybe tiny narrowing of the exigent circumstances doctrine, but there wasn't, you know, probable, co- that this is an unreasonable uh, seizure in, under these specific facts. Going beyond that, I honestly thought Kagan made the most sense. Ooh, and, say more. Uh, and so, so Kagan was the one who really started to hone in on the violent or not violent distinction. Um, Alito was interesting in sort of, can we talk about what hot pursuit really is? But so Kagan is, you know, the, where, where Kagan honed in, which I think was was really interesting, is that Look, the misdemeanor felony distinction, as you note, is kind of arbitrary. And in fact, doesn't isn't actually a stand-in for danger. It's not 
a felony, a, a felon is not always somebody who is more dangerous than somebody who commits a misdemeanor. And, you know, as, as Amy Howe points out very well, that, uh, and, and as Kagan points out, for example, there are some domestic violence offenses that are misdemeanors, whereas most white collar crimes are felonies. And so domestic violence involves violence. Would you need to be like screaming down I-65 here in Nashville? We've got, we've got an accountant who cooked the books in a 2015 Camry, you know, in that circumstance, is that, is that a search situation where you're going to just go, you know, barging into someone's home as opposed to in a situation where you, you might have a domestic violence situation that is a misdemeanor, but the important, the most relevant issue is violence. And so I thought that Kagan, if you're talking about, because the fourth amendment, um, you know, the, the text is dealing with unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, you know, a violence, nonviolence distinction makes a lot of sense. But then, of course, you had Gorsuch coming and helicoptering in with his sort of idea that says, wait a minute, um, you know, in the founding era, you're not barging in on a misdemeanor. Um, and, you know, he asked, specifically asked Rice, why would we create a rule that's less protective than what everyone understands the case of the Fourth Amendment as an original matter, which was a very interesting sort of Gorsuchy intervention. But of all of the back and forth between the justices about what about this and what about this, that and what about this and what about that, I thought the the Kagan and the uh and the violence uh versus nonviolent distinction made a lot more sense than a lot of the other distinctions I heard, or especially a lot more than, hey, we're just gonna kind of leave this up to the officers and then you know, kind of Monday morning quarterback it after that. Oh, I think we're going to leave it up to the officers and Monday morning quarterback it. <laughs> so in other words, like the worst possible outcome other than Lang losing his case. I take, I won't make any sort of normative, uh, <laughs> thought on that, but I I'll normative the heck out of that. that <laughs> <laughs> so you have Kavanaugh taking this uh, on directly uh, I thought everyone here concedes that even if there's not a categorical rule, the exigent circumstances doctrine would apply. Is that correct? Yes. And then one of the exigent circumstances that I mentioned to Mr. Fisher was to prevent a suspect's escape. Yes. And that wouldn't necessarily always have what Justice Gorsuch was talking about with respect to violence. It could, it might not, but I think everyone's conceded in this case, you and Mr. Fisher are acknowledged. I don't want to put it pejoratively, but acknowledged that the law is that preventing escape is an exigent circumstance that would justify warrantless entry into the house. Correct? Uh, so you've got at least one vote on another one. And then you have Barrett basically saying the same exact thing, but in a way that I found so wonderful because, David, one of my favorite phrases to use all the time uh, and you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read the story because it's so much fun. And in case any of our listeners are not aware of it, it's worth a little cul-de-sac. You all right if I drive down I'm, the cul-de-sac? I, I love a good cul-de-sac at a Very... slow rate of speed with my music blaring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the anecdote goes that this was uh, William James, who was uh, a philosopher, psychologist, etc. Uh, back in the day, this is you know old. Um, your theory that the sun is the center of the solar system and the earth is a ball which rotates around it has a very convincing ring to it, Mr. James. But it's wrong. I've got a better theory, said the little old lady. And what is that, madam? inquired Professor James politely. 
that we live on a crust of earth which is on the back of a giant turtle. <laughs> if your theory is correct, madam, what does the turtle stand on? Ha, you're a very clever man, Mr. James, and that's a very good question, but I have to answer uh, but I have an answer to it. And it's this. The first turtle stands on the back of a second, far larger turtle, who stands directly under him. But what does this turtle stand on? Persisted Professor James. To this, the little old lady crowed triumphantly. It's no use, Mr. James. It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, Justice Barrett said during the argument, Why isn't it all then just exigent circumstances all the way down? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that despite the Kagan-Gorsuch violence distinction, that there's too many exceptions to that. And the exigent circumstances, uh, you know, world alone, that hot pursuit plus violence now lives under exigent circumstances. Exigent circumstances is going to eat that up so that it doesn't even mean anything in the end. And you're going to end up where I am anyway, David, which is this case-by-case exigent circumstances inquiry. We already do it because it's the exigent circumstances uh, doctrine. I think, though, that there's a reason that the justices wanted so much argument on this question that they really, I mean, they were struggling with this more than I think we've seen them struggle in oral arguments with far more... um, I don't know, philosophical problems. You had Breyer talking about, you know, the trilemmas and the, all the problems. Um, it's because this will, they know that they need to have a real thing here. This opinion yeah. needs to say something. And I think they are worried about a, sure, it's 9-0 for Lang, and then it's 27 different opinions on what officers should do uh, in hot pursuit cases. Um, so. I I think this is actually one of the more fascinating, totally doesn't fall on partisan lines, at least in the oral argument. And so we're going to sort of see the Supreme Court at its best when this opinion comes out. And so I'm very, very excited about it. Yeah, you know, and it's also it's also an interesting case that shows. There there you just don't sit there and say, okay, if I'm an originalist, then I know how all everything's going to turn out. Oh, they tried. They tried. They, they tried. Many a question but, was, do you have any cases in common law? And each time they're like, no, your honor. Like, we don't have any. Stop asking. We didn't come up with any in the last 20 minutes. <laughs> and and you begin to realize, for example, how much different the criminal code is now than it was in, in common law. And so if you, it's not that you can draw these neat distinctions between felonies and misdemeanors and a current criminal code compared to common law. Um, for example, in, in one part of the oral argument, it, the point was made that, you know, back in the day, if you committed a felony, you were basically subject to the death penalty. And, um, wow, yikes. So, <laughs> in other words, the severity of the offense was deemed to be quite much more dramatic than what we label a felony today. And then that's why I thought the, I thought the Kagan... I thought the Kagan violence and not violence uh, dichotomy was particularly helpful in in sort of drawing giving to into to officers something concrete to 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 pin decision making on. Otherwise, it's exigent circumstances all the way down. And are they going to 
do anything really to the exigent circumstances doctrine to more narrowly and helpfully define it. And here's where I'm going to kind of dive into uh, a, a sort of extend it beyond why, why this matters so much and why we would spend so much time talking about this. I mean, we just had American cities erupt in massive amounts of urban unrest and, and large-scale violence over police, over police brut- allegations of police brutality, over um, police killings, police violence. And one of the, you know, the really critical issues here is under what circumstance is the pol- are the police allowed to escalate a situation? Under what circumstance are they allowed to sort of escalate the very real and physical stakes of the encounter between citizen and police officer? This is a constant theme, a constant theme in a lot of the most, um, most infuriating and most explosive police violence um, cases. They're getting a call not based on violence, but maybe a noise complaint, or somebody is seen walking through backyards, or somebody, and I'm you know talking about, or somebody's asleep in a uh, asleep in their car in a drive-through line. I mean, all of these are real life cases that have escalated under various circumstances into deadly force. And those of us who are really concerned about this tendency that exists of seemingly innocuous encounters escalating into deadly force are beginning to ask themselves if a lot of these constitutional doctrines like exigent circumstances, like hot pursuit, have been so broadly drawn that in encounters with citizens, police have far more discretion than the Constitution ever intended them to have, or or the text of the Constitution says that they should have. And this is, I think, a really important case for wrestling with this. And as you see, if you read through it, and we'll put the the transcript in our show notes, they're working hard on this, and they're working hard on it, both from an originalist perspective and also from a policy perspective. We haven't talked about Roberts. Roberts spends a lot of time talking about danger to police officers. All of his time, almost. Exactly. So he's talking a lot about, well, wait a minute, what's the danger to police officers here? And you can tell that's weighing on him heavily, and he's leaning towards rules that are going to minimize the danger to the police officer and doesn't seem to be indicating that there's any real danger to the suspect. And that's something that I think is, you know, where, you know, one of the things that we need to be aware of, and this might inflame a few listeners, is that there's in police encounters that maybe shouldn't escalate, the dangers run both ways. These dangerous situations run both ways, and granting police maximum discretion to grab a a citizen, often in confused circumstances, is not something that is, by default, going to ease danger. And and I I would have liked to have seen sort of more exploration of that, uh, but I thought that it was very interesting to see Roberts focus so much on uh, on the perceived danger to police. In part, though, because I think that so many of the hypotheticals were from the perspective of the, I'm going to call them the criminal here, the the fleur. Um, You know, oh, it's a a woman who's afraid at night. Oh, it's a teenager who wants, you know, who's afraid and wants to be closer to their parents. And so they run back into their house. The police officer doesn't know those things. And so I found those hypotheticals that were brought up during oral argument to be 
totally unhelpful and at times irrelevant because this always has to come from the perspective of the police officer, including whatever rule the court hands down. The rule can't be um, that each potential fleeor, uh, oh, well, you can flee if you're a woman who's afraid because it's late at night and you don't know that this right. is a police officer. That's not what this is going to end up being. So I thought from an advocate perspective, that was a huge mistake that they allowed themselves to go down that road, except, and again, I will compliment Miss Rice, the Caden clerk who was appointed to argue her sort of extreme position. But she said something that I thought was spot on. The justifications for the exceptions relate to the suspect's flight, not the nature of his initial crime. He claims that if officers must point to exigencies other than a hot pursuit, even in felony cases. At least there, she's, I think, making an important point. Um, this idea that like violence in the underlying crime is relevant. There's all sorts of reasons that someone may grab a gun in their house because they don't want to be arrested. Maybe they've done something else and the officer doesn't know about that thing. The officer thinks they're pulling him over for a taillight, but in fact, there's a whole bunch of, I don't know, uh, you know, heroin in their house or something. The violence is in the officer's reasonable state of mind not the the person fleeing and not from the initial crime. Uh, I do have, there wasn't like any humor in this argument uh, for obvious <laughs> reasons, but there was a moment that I found quite funny. And it also is from Mrs. Rice's oral argument. Uh, Justice Thomas, one last question with respect to the common law. This is like all of Justice Thomas's questions in this were like written by a Justice Thomas AI bot. Um, <laughs> so if we you should create a justice thomas ai bot twitter account it wouldn't be hard uh if we <laughs> think that there is some doubt as to whether or not common law favors you or if we think it actually disfavors you what should we do miss rice like in atwater this just isn't a case where there was a clear answer that existed in 1791 and has been adhered to ever since so like in atwater justice thomas other modes of constitutional analysis, like the traditional interest balancing we've been discussing today, should control. This is like after three different times of Justice Thomas asking her like what her originalist argument is. Finally, the Kagan clerk is like, originalism ain't gonna help you here. Move it along, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a bold answer to basically say like, okay, I'm not gonna get your vote. That's fine. I'm moving on. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, you know, one thing that is interesting to me about the Roberts line of questioning and the danger line of questioning is it, there is an awful, it feels to me that a lot of jurisprudence is centered around guarding against worst case, sort of taking the police and sort of saying, we're going to create a jurisprudence that gives you the tools to deal with worst case, as opposed to a jurisprudence that says we're going to bind you to the most likely case. In other words, yeah. um, if you, how many people who are chasing someone who honks their horn too loud, honks their horn and has music too loud, how many times is that going to result in an ambush, an armed ambush at the home? The the odds of that are in vanishingly low, like vanishingly small. Well, if you yes look and at no. The, I just want to challenge you on that one of the most dangerous things an officer does is pull over people on the road, oftentimes for missing taillights or for playing their music too loudly. Many of the officers who are shot in the line of duty, that is, it's a traffic stop. So yes, I understand right. that we're now talking about someone going into their home, but 
you know, I wouldn't underestimate it. The odds are vanishingly low in any given traffic stop. The, I mean, that that's the point is what you're talking about is, yes, in theory, and one of the ways that training is done for police officers is they are taught possibilities, not probabilities. And so um, this is something that we dealt with a lot in Iraq in in do you make your tactical decision on the basis of a possibility or a probability? And that was the way a lot of our rules were fashioned was based on probabilities, uh, not possibilities. And so, you know, one of the issues is when you're going to say that we're going to allow maximum discretion based on a very low degree of possibility, that's where I begin to have some issues. Uh, with that kind of of thinking. And if you look at the sort of like, what are the most dangerous jobs in America? Um, a lot of people would say, oh, the most dangerous job in America is a cop. And that's not true. That's actually pretty far from true. And And so it's, you know, one of the things that I think that we've done is we've sort of taken this notion of the danger of policing and we've enhanced it in our minds beyond what the facts suggest. And based on that enhanced perception, have granted an immense amount of authority in the moment to police. And that's one of the things that I that I question, I question the wisdom of. And it's one of the reasons why doctrines like hot pursuit are so broad or exigent circumstances are so broad. Um, is that Anyway, that's a much longer discussion, and it's one that's very relevant, I think, into the police training, much more than the doctrine into training. And it's fascinating to, for me to see some of the differences between military training and counterinsurgency operations, as opposed to police training and domestic policing operations. And the military training and counterinsurgency operations is often teaches greater restraint than police training and domestic policing operations. But that's a that's a whole nother discussion. Speaking of the military, how about that draft? How about that draft? Yeah, let's let's talk military. Um, so your your idea, let's just cut to the chase, is what we're about to discuss legally isn't really gonna matter because the Supreme Court's not gonna take cert in the case. But yeah, so the, this is right now up at the Supreme Court on a cert petition brought by the National Coalition for Men. Uh, the lawyers for this are Hogan Levels, which is a well-respected law firm, and the ACLU. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to repeat, this is the National Coalition for Men, formerly known as the National Coalition of Free Men. Um, if you're wondering where you've heard about this group before, they've been around a long time, actually. Interestingly, David, the Southern Poverty Law Center has characterized them as an extremist group. Um, but really? most recently, do you remember the just horrific story from several months ago of the federal judge whose son was killed and whose husband was oh, shot yeah. when a man came to their door as posing as a, um, a delivery man? Yes, terrible. That guy was kicked out of this group five months ago. Or sorry, five years ago. And a week before that judge was shot, the vice president of this group was also murdered by someone posing as a delivery man, which they now assume for the most part was the same assailant. And Yeesh. he was killed. 
at least according to some of his friends in the organization, over this case because the murderer who took his own life, so we're never going to know the full story, um, was found with notes about this guy and about this case in his car um, where he killed himself. Uh, He was jealous. He wanted to be the one. He thought this was his issue, and he was upset that the National Coalition for Men with this vice president who we thought was sort of the driving force was bringing this case without him and without his help. So this case has a really tragic background at this point. Um, I, you know, going up on a cert petition that's interesting is all fun. I, yeah, I don't know where the four votes are to take this case right now. It doesn't have a whole lot of far-reaching implications. They are correct that this is one of the only areas of federal law where there is still explicit distinction between genders, but also kind of, so what? No one believes that there will be a draft anytime soon. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. I, I, I can imagine if I sort of put on my pessimistic, uh, future dystopian hat that, uh, in the one area where we would have a draft, Sarah is a land war in Asia. <laughs> that's the one area where we would have a draft is a land war in Asia. And what is our emerging primary geopolitical rival? It's, of course, China. So I could imagine a time period, say, if we're in something approximating a Cold War with China, something along the lines of what was contemplated, a kind of confrontation that was contemplated against, say, the Soviet Union and in Western Europe in the mid-1980s, you would a, a draft would be far, far more relevant. But you're right. I mean, it's not relevant. And right if that now. does it, happen... And we use the draft, then this lawsuit will be filed three hours after the draft is instituted, and the Supreme <laughs> Court will take it. So, we're, what they're asking them to overturn is a case called Rosker v. Goldberg from 1981, which upheld the gender distinctions in the Military Selective Service Act, in large part, if not wholly, because women were not allowed in combat, and the government said, This is for combat positions. We need it for combat. Therefore, it doesn't matter. We don't need women in it. It's fine to have this distinction because there's a distinction in um, the Uniform Service Code. That, however, changed in 2013, David, roughly. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the yeah. exact year. In 2013, the Department of Defense lifted the ban on women in combat, thus you know, massively undermining this 1981 Roster v. Goldberg case. Okay, I-, I get it. I'm not saying that this isn't a well- brought case in a lot of ways, but there's a who cares problem. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting case from the standpoint of, yeah, as you were saying, it's one of the last sort of solidified within law distinctions between, uh, legal distinctions between men and women. There's an interesting sort of aspect of this, um, that I, I think is under discussed and that is what is the what kind of pool of eligible young people do we have in the United States? When I say eligible, people who are fit for military service. And I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but what's really interesting and troubling is we, again, not immediately, we have the most lethal and powerful military in the world. As of this moment, anyone who would try to directly challenge us, that is in a, in a force-on-force confrontation, that's a bad idea. Uh, but if you fast forward in the future, those realities might change. But one of the things that we have seen is a decreasing number of American young people who are fit for service. 
who, if they were called up, would be eligible to serve. And I think that if you're talking about a future situation where there's a massive national emergency, that would be a big part of, uh, you know, a big part of, of the dynamic in play is do we have enough people that we can draft who are fit for service? Um, and, you know, one of the other things is, okay, very few women right now in the, who are, who are entering into combat arms training, re, there are very few women relative to men who enter into combat arms training and, and make it through combat arms training. Some do certainly in land combat, but many do not. If you got a problem with uh, the number of people who are fit for service and you have far more people in support roles than combat roles, there's going to be some really interesting questions about whether as a matter of national, vital national security, you're going to want to be drafting a lot of women, even if they're not going to be infantry, to free up more men to be infantry who are, have that the physical capability to go through the training. It's a, it's a fascinating question for sometime in the future <laughs> if Look, the strategic posture maybe changes just for funsies but i think with all of the other conversations going around with bostock which was the case about uh, sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination i just don't see them saying you know what will be super fun and random guys <laughs> what if we hear a case about the draft right and then there's also the underlying reality that this is the area in which the court is most likely to defer to the p- political branches of government. Also true. N- yeah, national no, security more broadly. No, that's not to broadly. say that, I, I mean, I'd be curious whether the Biden administration would really fight to not include women in the draft. I, I'm sort of surprised it hasn't already just happened from a policy standpoint instead of a legal standpoint. Um, I think that is far more likely to just happen because, you know, why the heck not? Well, I think the probably last priority of any American administration would be raising the possibility of a draft. Well, that's an interesting point, I suppose. (laughs) Of all of the things that we're going to deal with, while we have the most powerful military, arguably in the history of the world, we're going to talk about conscription. Although I think a democratic administration that is seen as somewhat dovish, set aside what happened in Syria last week, would be well positioned to say this has nothing to do with the draft. This is everything to do with equality in our country right now at a time where we are grappling with these issues as a you know society or something or other. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an interesting legal issue that, as you say, probably won't be decided. So in disagreeing with me, I feel like you've been very hostile on this podcast. <laughs> and so let's talk about what makes a hostile work environment. Did you like that segue? Was that a good segue? That's a fantastic segue. <laughs> uh, so in order for a work environment to be uh, considered hostile under Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, harassment has to be unwelcome, number one. Number two, because of the employee's uh, status in a protected class, That's what Bostock was about, by the way, or what are those protected classes? But Mm -hmm. uh, we know race and ethnicity are a protected class, for instance. Number three, attributable to the employer. And number four, and this is where things get tricky, severe or pervasive enough to change the conditions of employment and create an abusive environment judged by one, an objective standard, any reasonable person would find this conduct abusive, and to a subjective standard, the employee themselves did find the conduct abusive. 
And so with that fun, very superficial walk down employment law, David, why don't you introduce us to this super fun case? Yeah. Interesting, fascinating case. And this comes from, uh, this is a, a cert grant uh, or a cert petition to the Supreme Court, Collier versus Dallas County Hospital District. And the question that's going to be at, at issue is that does the mere utterance of a particular offensive epithet create a hostile work environment, specifically here, the N-word, as to whether the use, the single use, whether, uh, the, so here are the exact questions presented, whether an employee's exposure to the N-word in the workplace is severe enough to send his Title VII hostile work environment claim to a trier fact, to the jury. In other words, for the jury to decide whether or not it meets, meets the standard and whether in what circumstances racial epithets in the workplace are extremely serious incidents sufficient to create a hostile work environment under Title VII rather than non-actionable mere utterances. And under the facts of this case, this individual worked in a, uh, in a hospital and the N-word was apparently carved into the wall. And despite Collier's multiple complaints to supervisors, he alleges his employer never did anything to remove the elevator graffiti. There were also SWAT stickers um, that were, um, you know, there was SWAT sticker graffiti. And so, but the real issue is the N-word. So the real issue is, is exposure to the N-word in that circumstance sufficient to create a hostile work environment. And there's a circuit split on the issue. And this uh, is what makes this incredibly likely to have certain granted, yes. like near 100%. Look for circuit splits. So people, Tom Goldstein, for instance, comes to mind, Amy Howe's husband, formerly mentioned as friend of the pod. Um, this, his whole thing was he looked for cases that had big circuit splits and would yep. take up those cert petitions and the court granted them at an incredibly high rate. Uh, and he was not sort of considered one of the elect and elite, you know, Supreme Court litigators. And now he is because of sort of the math side, the money ball side yeah. of Supreme Court cert grants. And boy, is this one teed up nicely. Yeah. In third and fourth circuits, a jury may find a workplace use of the N-word is an extremely serious, isolated incident that is sufficiently severe. In the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and tenth, on the other hand, a single workplace use of the epithet is a non-actionable mere utterance that will never reach a fact finder. And I bet you money that if you talk to an average person who said, if someone is called the N-word in the office, is that illegal racial harassment? They would say, yes. Yes, it is. In part because a lot of employers have policies that you would call prophylactic. In other words, because they don't want hostile environment harassment to take place in the workplace, and because the definition of hostile environment harassment is this complicated thing that you just laid out that can often sweep in an awful lot of rude stuff on the basis of, say, race or gender, that it doesn't rise to the level of illegality, what, what workplaces will do is they'll put in place these prophylactic rules that say, hey, our rules are way more strict than federal anti-harassment law. And so, you know, most employers, if there is a, a, a use of the N-word as a slur, you're gone. You're gone. But a lot of people would not realize that that isn't necessarily unlawful hostile environment harassment under Title VII. Um, so, Sarah, how do you see this playing out? Okay, so the circuit split, they have got a great shot here on the single-use issue. Here's their right. problem. 
I don't know that this is going to be considered a single use. Mm -hmm. So this is coming up from the Fifth Circuit, one of the circuits that does not allow the single use of, in this case, the N-word, to reach a jury. By law, they say that cannot be enough. In this case, though, where it is carved into an elevator bank, and he says every single day he has to go up and down the elevator, so twice a day at minimum, he has to see a racial epithet. That, to me, is sort of the definition of not a single-use yes. racial epithet. Um, and so I think there's potentially some other uh, ways this case will resolve itself Um yeah, I don't see how something carved into a wall comes anywhere in the ballpark of, you know, a random dude who you work with walking by and saying like, hey, N-word, like that's an interesting question that should be resolved, actually. And the circuit split makes it clear that someone will get to take that case. I don't know that Mr. Collier is going to get to have that case, though, and oddly because his case is worse. Right, right. His case is worse, but he's still lost. I know. Which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, these employment cases are incredibly hard to win. Um, a lot of other stuff goes, you know, comes up in them. And mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about how facts make the law a lot of the time. And even though it is not really supposed to be considered at this stage, what happens is the employer says, this guy didn't show up to work for three days out of five for three two months in a row. So yeah, we fired him. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's black. It has nothing to do with the hostile work environment. And oftentimes, you know, they'll say like, yeah, we're not dealing with this. Yeah. Well, and I'll, yeah, you're, so I'm going back to the, um, I'm going back to the, the actual fifth circuit decision, um, filed in April, 2020. And here's how, who is on the panel? Let me roll up and look at this. King, Jones, and Costa. Hmm. That's a that's per- a spicy panel. Per curium. Ooh, even more interesting. Yeah, okay. So they yeah. didn't spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. So in June 26, and here's why, I bet you, Sarah, here's why. And by the way, I, June- when I say they didn't spend a lot of time on it, just so I can clarify for people what I mean by that, uh, a PC opinion when I say they didn't spend a lot of time, because they believe it is controlled by Fifth Circuit precedent, they did not need to spend a lot of time on this because it was going to fall squarely under some other case that had already been decided. Okay, go ahead. In June 2016, Collier had a disagreement with Rays, his supervisor, which eventually led to his determination. According to Rays, Collier refused to work in Pod D, one of the four stations where operating room aides worked. And Collier later cursed at raids, threatened him, and became very aggressive, violent, and started hitting the wall. Other nearby employees confirmed that Collier refused to work in Pod D, despite their attempts to convince him to do so, and that Collier exhibited threatening and aggressive behavior. The Dallas Collie Hospital District Police Department was summoned, and Collier was issued a citation for assault and was escorted off the property. Yep, that's a, that's a tough one. Or yeah. rather, not a tough one. <laughs> so this is again how many times we have to say it about how facts, how the, how you always, and this is one of the first things that I was told, and and I wasn't told this much in law school. I wasn't told this as much as you might want to be told it in law school. Part of that is due to the fact that I, uh, after my our mandatory first year cl- classes that I just went straight towards the highly ideological course selections. 
if it was like the law and, you know, that that's the giveaway that this is a super ideological kind of uh, and theoretical area of study, the law and anything. But um, one thing that I was not taught sufficiently was how facts, 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 facts matter so much. And man, if I have not seen this a million times in employment cases, that here's what often ends up happening, Sarah, and this is that, and I, I, the last case that I ever actually took to a jury was an employment-related case. It was for unconstitutional retaliation in denying someone a promotion. And I sat my client down and I said, here is your job. You have one job aside from, you know, answering truthfully and, and et cetera, and you're, you're uh, directing cross-examination. Your job is to spend in the entire trial looking and acting like somebody who deserves a promotion to full professor. That's your job. The judge should believe it was crazy that you wouldn't get a promotion. The jury should believe it was crazy that you wouldn't get a promotion because here's a weird sort of fact about a lot of these employment law cases is that a lot of these employment law cases, there's the law and then there's the subjective assessment that the judge and the jury make of, do I want to work with this person? Is this a person that I want to work with, I would work with or that I would want to see get a promotion or I would want to see get hired? It's not supposed to be there. That's not supposed to be the part of the equation, but is there's always this sort of subjective dynamic underneath it. And so one of the things that I look for when I see otherwise kind of odd court decisions are on the law, I'm always going to dive into the facts. And when you have that kind of fact pattern, that has nothing to do with the inward issue, right? Or very little, but I think, I feel like it had a lot to do with the outcome. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, I, I give it a very slim shot of getting granted cert because of uh, the underlying facts and two, because they are applying for cert on something that is a good circuit split, but it's not the facts of their case. I don't think this counts as single use. Now, it could have been interesting, and I don't know um, all of the circuit decisions on this, does something in writing on a wall count as a single use because someone only scratched it into the wall one time? I can't imagine that there's a circuit split on that, but maybe. Well, you know, I when I was younger in the practice of law, our, our employment department, employment litigation department, had cases in which supervisors put up centerfolds um, in public spaces. Uh, that is act, things things right. like that actually that's, happen. That's it, not a single use gender discrimination. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So. This is why, by the way, listeners, some of you guys send us stuff from time to time, cert petitions, and I write back and say, let me know when cert is granted. Unfortunately, this time the person sending them to me was my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it's an interesting launch. Didn't we just have an interesting discussion about this? We did. I'm just explaining why we generally don't talk about all the cert petitions. Right. That's right. All. No, That's you're, all. you're exactly they have right. Fundamental problems like the two that you wanted to talk about today. <laughs> well, but did I not send you the cheerleader one that yes. got granted? Yes. Okay. All no, right. you're, that's true. I'm, look, your batting average isn't zero. No question. <laughs> no, it's not. 
Okay, I have a ending short cultural topic that I'm going to spring on you, but you're super well-equipped to answer this. Yikes. Okay. Young Sarah is driving slowly through her neighborhood, and the windows are down, and the music is blaring. My Dave Matthews Crash album is just going out to the world. That was going to be my question. What music (laughs) is young Sarah blasting? And you went ahead and answered it. Um... No, so I I had actually a very small um, CD uh, plastic thing holder in my car. It probably only fit like 10 or 12 CDs. Uh, I also did not have the money to buy CDs. So most of them were ripped off of my friend's CDs because I did have a CD-ROM copy um, uh, Mm. drive. Yeah, for some reason, my parents wouldn't give me the money to buy CDs, but that was a good investment. Uh, And it was. (laughs) So um, I had The Offspring, uh, Bush, 16 Stone, Dave Matthews Crash, Soul Asylum, Runaway Train. That wasn't the name of the album, I don't think, but that's like the main song on it. Um, Bare Naked Ladies. Those are the main ones that I'm like reaching for in my head right now. I was, I was pretty into, oh, um, They Might Be Giants, Flood album. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so pretty alternative late 90s rock. So I'm a little bit older than you. So I, if teenage, teenage David, who would, you know, ne'er do well, teenage David, who would catch the eye of the local cops would have been probably listening to one of two albums that I had on, that were my car albums Mm -hmm. that were on cassette tape because Mm -hmm. we didn't have CDs in the car back then in my day, Sarah, we were just barely removed from the horse and buggy. And so we were, (laughs) I had two cassette tapes that were. Combustion engines really? were a miracle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, uh, we we were still in the controversial is this horseless carriage going to be a thing stage. <laughs> but so I had th- really, th- I had three. One was the evening and a mellow and kind of chilling. But when it was going to be blasting, it was going to be either Rush, Power Windows, or Yes, 90125. And so you haven't heard Owner of a Lonely Heart? Oh, yeah. Sarah? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Course. Yeah. Okay. So it was going to be Rush Power Windows. Yes, 90125. But when I'm chilling and not getting pulled over, it's Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, Volumes 1 and 2. That's funny because literally was introducing my son to some Billy Joel. He's eight months old, so it was time. And I was noting how um, I feel like Billy Joel's two main contemporaries are Eric Clapton on sort of the one side who gets a ton of, of credit and sort of legit praise by, you know, really people into music and guitar as one of sort of the all-time great guitarists. And then on the other side of him is, um, oh my gosh, uh, you know, Yellow Brick Road. Um, Beatles. No, no. Um, Elton John. <laughs> is <laughs> the Beatles, the did side, they do a Yellow Brick Road? I don't follow the Beatles. Yeah. Nope, not the Beatles. Elton John. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. Listeners are going to crush me okay. for saying that. So on the other hand is Elton John, who got a ton of attention because he was, you know, a better performer, I will maybe even concede. But Billy Joel arguably has the best actual music to listen to when you're just like cooking dinner or, or driving chill in your car. And I don't feel like he gets nearly enough credit for so many of his songs that are just good. That's it. They're just good. I, I'm I'm just going to tell you, if you go to Billy, Billy Joel 1 and 2 and you 
just th- these songs, Piano Man. Piano Man is incredible. Okay, it is, that's like the one song I don't like, but still. You don't like P- Piano Man? No, Ugh. I don't. The Entertainer is great. Allentown is fantastic. Goodnight Saigon. Oh my gosh. That song is, yeah, that's incredible. But I did um, find the best Spotify list ever for listeners who were like, yeah, Sarah's six CDs. That sounds awesome. 90s rock anthems by Spotify is about as good as you get to what was at least uh, where I grew up, 96.5, your rock alternative. <laughs> so here's the assignment for listeners in the comments. What are you going to be pulled over listening to? Because <laughs> it's got to be loud. You know, I'm, I yeah. was never going to get pulled over listening to Piano Man. I, I feel like I, like, yes, Blasting the Offspring is the perfect CD to get pulled over to. <laughs> Not going to disagree. Not going to yeah, disagree. Totally. All right. Well, that is it for the latest edition of Advisory Opinions. We will be back on Thursday. Until then, again, please go rate us. Please go subscribe on Apple Podcasts and please check out thedispatch.com. And we will talk to you again on Thursday. Thursday.